It's Friday, November 16th, and this is The Daily Dive. Stopping short of a complete ban on flavored e-cigarettes, the Food and Drug Administration proposed a range of new rules to help limit the exposure of e-cigs to young people. The FDA will allow stores to still sell the products, but they must be in closed-off areas inaccessible to minors. They also propose banning menthol in cigarettes and flavored cigars. Bob Herman, healthcare reporter for Axios, joins us for the details on the FDA's plans. Next, the Florida recount is underway, but is not without its problems and lawsuits. A manual hand recount has been ordered in the Senate race between Bill Nelson and Rick Scott, where about 12,600 votes separate them. Other voters get more time to resolve issues with their signatures and get their ballots counted. Matt Dixon, Florida Bureau Chief for Politico, joins us for more on the midterm elections that never end. Finally, an update on the California wildfires. Containment has increased, but so has the death toll, and many are still missing. But as firefighters continue to bravely get things under control, we find out that authorities in the town of Paradise only issued limited evacuation alerts, leaving many at the mercy of the fast-moving fire. My producer Miranda joins me for that, and also what is next, tracking down the cause of the fire. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We're going to look at withdrawing the flavored products from the market. We think the fact that these products exist in flavors that are attractive to young people, including certain kinds of fruity flavors, is at least one component of what's driving the youth use and what's making these products appealing to teenagers. Joining us now is Bob Herman, healthcare business reporter for Axios. So stopping short of its threatened ban on all flavored e-cigarettes, the FDA said that they want to allow stores to continue selling the products, but they want to do it in closed off areas that are inaccessible to minors. They propose a couple of other things as well. It just kind of makes you think of going to the video store, if anybody knows what those are anymore now, going to the video store and going to the naughty video section closed off by a curtain or something like that. And it seems like this is the road that they're trying to take with the selling of e-cigarettes now. What what did the FDA say? The FDA stopped short of a full ban on e-cigarettes and instead is telling stores to have sections that are basically blocked off and you know aren't accessible to minors. And there's also some rules for age verification for online sales. Initially, there was ideas of a full ban, but I think the FDA stopped short just in case there are any kind of legal challenges. Now, the FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, I mean, he's in a tight situation here. And from my reading, the the reason why he didn't do a full ban on the flavored e-cigarettes is just because he wants people who are smokers and want to use this as an alternative to still have that alternative. But the big thing is the crisis really is that younger kids in high school and middle school are starting to use these vape products. And obviously it could lead them down the line into smoking regular cigarettes. And it's all about the flavor. They've all come down to it and blamed it on the flavored pods that you could add to it and basically saying that this is how they get in and then it makes them become regular smokers. The flavored is the big issue here. Obviously, when when you have different flavors of e-cigarettes or even any kind of tobacco in general, the line of thinking is that you're trying to cater to a younger audience. And that is what concerned FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb in particular. There is some numbers to show that it is appealing to younger students. Like As you alluded to, the government came out with statistics that showed a lot of high school students are using e-cigarettes more from 2017 to 2018. The number of high school students who used 
e-cigarettes or vape went up 78%. So that means roughly 3 million kids vape, and that's basically one out of every five high school students. And flavored e-cigarettes is presumably a reason behind that large increase. And this is really trying to get at that. It's trying to stem it off from that number going even further. And obviously, if, if you get hooked on e-cigarettes and, and the nicotine that's in there, the thought process then becomes, okay, well, then are you going to jump to actual cigarettes and other tobacco products? And that's obviously not a place where public health experts really want kids or the country to go. I think the FDA also proposed some bans on menthol cigarettes, like regular cigarettes, not the e-cigarettes, and also flavored cigars. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, the FDA also moved forward with an actual outlaw of menthol cigarettes, and those are among the more popular cigarettes that are sold. Menthol cigarettes account for a little bit more than a third of all cigarette sales in the United States. It's a very popular flavor, and the FDA is actually saying we we need to stop doing that. What's been the reaction from e-cigarette manufacturers and then smoke shops and business owners that would have to make this separate area just to sell these things? For some of the stores, when it comes to the e-cigarette restrictions, it doesn't really appear like it'll necessarily be a big intrusion for them because it's not a full ban. Maybe they'll just have to put up a curtain like you said earlier, or they'll, they'll just have to reorganize a little bit to make sure that kids can't see it. Maybe it could be something as simple as just putting it under the counter. It's really unclear how it'll affect their businesses, but the e-cigarette makers were actually trying to get out ahead of this. Jewel Labs is one of the biggest and rising manufacturers of e-cigarettes, and this week announced a series of actions trying to prevent young people from smoking e-cigarettes, its own product, and some of those steps that it took including shutting down a social media account. I thought that was kind of interesting because you get a lot of play from your social media and I know they were doing promotions. So that, I mean, it, it seems like such a minor thing, but that's actually like a huge thing for them to say we're shutting down social media. Right. Yeah. It's, and so much traffic is driven through social media now, just not just news consumption, but you know, pretty much all advertisements in, in some way you want to promote your Facebook or Twitter feed, Instagram. And they actually said, you know, we'll, we'll stop that. And we're actually going to stop selling flavored pods, like some of the popular ones like mango or other fruit. They were trying to be proactive in terms of not broadcasting these flavored e-cigarettes and actually stop selling them. But it also wasn't necessarily convincing to the FDA. Scott Collins said it was helpful that they're doing that, but necessarily going to stop them from trying to restrict the sales of these flavored e-cigarettes. Right. He wants to take that regulatory step. Now, these are all just kind of proposals right now. What's the framework for actually getting this stuff implemented? They still need to go through public comments. The entire process probably will take more than two years before wow. you know, it actually goes into effect. So there's, there's a lot of time for this to not only be shaped and influenced, there's just a lot that's unanswered. This is just kind of the, the opening thing ends up for people to see what could actually, you know, what kind of regulation can actually be out there. Bob Herman, healthcare business reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. We gave a heroic effort, and given probably three or four more hours, we might have made the time. I have a great team. I think that we just got stuck with some mechanical issues that were inherited. It shouldn't take long. There's 5,900 ballots. We're going to have 20 counting teams, and so take a maximum of a couple hours. Joining us now is Matt Dixon, Florida Bureau Chief for Politico. It is the midterm elections that never end. Florida has ordered a manual recount of the results in the U.S. Senate race. Bill Nelson and Republican Rick Scott are separated by about 12,600 votes. They didn't order a manual recount in the governor's race, but they did also order the recount for agricultural commissioner. That's going to a manual recount. What is going on in Florida there with all of this news? 
outside the answer for what's going on in Florida. <laughs> I know. No, but yesterday, the first wave of recounts ended. That was the machine process where they were recounting with machines. And, and the governor's race here in Florida is now over. That was part of the, the first wave of recounts. And Republican former Congressman Ron DeSantis will be Florida's next governor. But as you mentioned, the nationally watched U.S. Senate race between current Florida Governor Rick Scott and Democrat Bill Nelson is now going to go to a hand recount. Just over 12,000 votes apart. It is a wide margin. It's going to a hand recount, which makes it sound close, but there's a lot of people beginning to think that there might not be enough votes here for Senator Nelson to overtake Governor Scott's lead, but the counting process is for. The machine process also had its problems. There was uh, machines overheating and uh, just people there locally making a big deal of saying, you know, these are old machines. Why didn't we fix this before? I know the judge had very strong words for the whole process. Yeah, one county in particular, and and for those who uh, remember the 2000 recount here in Florida, it it centered a lot on Palm Beach County, which is, uh, you know, North Miami. And once again, Palm Beach County is sort of taking the spotlight. They have machines that I I guess are over a decade old that the supervisor of elections there is saying. As a result, they were breaking down. And two, they can't handle multiple recounts at once. I'm no voting machine expert, but I've learned over the past day or two that newer machines can do several recounts at once. Palm Beach County's never updated its election infrastructure and its voting machines. So it was one of two counties that missed the machine recount deadline, which is it was getting a lot of attention on that county yet again. What was the issue with the mail-in ballots? Because that also got extended. That's going to go until Saturday where people can go and say, this is my signature, this is my ballot, in hopes that it would still get counted. Because they were trying to throw out like around 4,000 ballots. Generally, the the vote by mail ballots here are due by election day. They have to get to the election supervisor, local election officials by election day. Bill Nelson, in his effort to try to find more votes, filed a federal lawsuit saying that, hey, if someone sends a vote by mail ballot and it's postmarked prior to the deadline, but doesn't get there until after the deadline, those should still count. It shouldn't disenfranchise a voter just because something happened in the mail process or it just didn't get there in time. The judge in, in that case didn't give him a full win. He didn't say these can all count. But what he did say is he extended the deadline and the roughly 4,000 ballots that were involved. Now people have an opportunity to fix those through Saturday. That's uh, going to be a big, uh, kind of a mad scramble by the Nelson campaign and political parties to start reaching out to folks who had their mail ballots rejected and, and letting them know and and trying to get them to go ahead and fix them. Those people that got affected by that, they get notified by mail or is it on the campaigns to help them or how how does that work? The logistics of it from the official side, I'm I'm not actually sure. I don't believe it's on the local election official to do it, but I can, without question, I know that the the campaigns and the political parties will now be letting them know because it's such an important thing and there's thousands of volunteers here helping with that process. So if there's someone in Florida whose vote by mail ballot was rejected, I have no doubt they're going to know about it within the, if, if they don't already real soon. What do we make about all of the lawsuits that have been filed? Because there's been a bunch uh, and I know the judge there that's overseeing a lot of this stuff has rejected some of them. Yeah, I think it's probably kind of the nature of recount. Bill Nelson's campaign, who is down, has filed most of them. And I think the idea of leveraging more votes out of the process always involves the courts when we get to that this point. It's been fairly clear from the beginning, even though he was very close to Governor Scott, that the courts and lawsuits are going to be his path to victory. 
history. He had a few filed that could shake loose the, the vote by mail ballot lawsuit we talked about. And then the, the other one that could shake loose maybe 4,000 votes were getting wins in court on those are kind of his biggest hope. But that's starting to fade. So Nelson was suing to try to make up the gap. And the judge hasn't given him the complete victories that that campaign has needed. Just looking over into the manual recount is going to play out. I'm not sure if this is for all counties or how this really works, but they says that there's going to be 100 tables set up with two election workers, two campaign reps and two party representatives at each. And they're going to go for 11 hour days with two 30 minute breaks each day. And then that deadline now is for Sunday. So I guess this just drags on until then. And then uh, the official certification happens this coming Tuesday. Correct. The boring slog of democracy in action here. (laughs) One by one we go. Oh, man. I I mean, I like I said earlier, the judge uh, overseeing a lot of this stuff was calling the state a laughingstock, saying this stuff happened before and we can't get our act together again. And who knows if they will be able to get it in order for the next time. Matt Dixon, Florida Bureau Chief for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, guys. We're on the backside of the significant winds as they die down. We are still, though, in very dry, critical fire weather conditions uh, for the next several days uh, throughout California. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. We wanted to provide some updates on the fires raging throughout California. Unfortunately, the death toll has risen. Containment has increased, but there's still a long way to go. Specifically in the campfire, which is one the one happening up north, The death toll has gone up to 56. There's still over 100 people missing. People expect the death toll to continue to rise. They have found a bunch of people, thankfully. The longer that time passes, the grimmer the picture becomes. They're going through homes, ashes, trying to track down whatever they can find. Yeah, they're searching through abandoned homes that are still standing, rubble that's available to them, as well as cars that maybe were pulled over to the side of the road, just to try to search through to find anything living, human or pets, animals, that kind of thing. There's more than 460 people, along with 22 dogs involved in the recovery efforts. And since they started collecting names of the missing people, investigators have found more than 200 people safe. Yeah, that's great news. Because part of the problem is they don't know who's missing unless they're reported. It's gotten to the point where people have started to submit DNA so that they can possibly track people or, you know, if they find somebody that's dead to try to get some type of positive identification. And then to add insult to injury, at one of these evacuation centers, it was at a neighborhood church, a norovirus outbreak was confirmed where there's about 200 evacuees there. Don't know the exact number of how many people got ill, but they sequestered them so that not every, you know, so that everything wouldn't be spreading. Staff members at that shelter are cleaning handles, countertops, anywhere where the virus might be. I mean, that's just the worst right there. They say that the outbreaks like this are not uncommon because of the small spaces that everybody's living in. And other places, residents are building their own resource centers for displaced. There's a group of people who li- are living, I guess in a Walmart parking lot in Chico and they buy stuff from the store and hand out food and stuff out there. There's an area for pets where they have dog beds and pet food. And then there's also a Burger King parking lot where people have been meeting to reunite with lost family members and find a safe place to sleep where there's also food. 
Just to provide some numbers for how this thing has been progressing, we were talking about the campfire. Over 140,000 acres have burned. They say it's about 40% contained right now, but that could also change. That's what we were talking about. 56 people died there. Mm -hmm. So far, the Hill Fire is almost fully contained. That one had about 4,500 acres burned. And the Woolsey Fire that was in LA and Ventura counties, just about 100,000 acres burned, about 57% containment. And as I said, these numbers change every day. But one of the things that came to light that was very interesting was the town of Paradise was affected. Most of the deaths occurred there. The thing that came up was how they were monitoring and how they were implementing the evacuation orders. A lot of times they have uh, sent out phone calls and text messages and things like that. And it just seemed to be a mess from the beginning. In 2008, Paradise, California, suffered a pretty major wildfire. And at the time, they issued mass evacuations. They just told everybody to leave at the same time. And what they found was that everybody left at the exact same time and the roads were clogged and it was very difficult for people to escape safely. So what they wanted to do this time was evacuate people in stages right. and try to get everyone on the east side of town where the fire was started out first and then move in phases so that everybody would be able to evacuate safely. The problem with that was the fire was moving way too fast. Right. It took hours before people found out. And most people didn't find out from like you would expect a text message or a phone call. They found out from cops driving up and down the streets on their loudspeaker saying, get out now. And by that time, it was way too late. And, you know, Paradise sits on a hilltop. There's canyons all around it. They only have four narrow winding roads to be able to get out of there. So that was the thought process. If we tell everybody to go. It's just going to be gridlock all over again. Let's right. do it in stages. But the fire was moving so fast, there was absolutely no hope for those people to get out of there. They use a phone system called Code Red, and they even said that in the town of Paradise, they're lucky if 25 to 30 percent of phone lines are in that system. Right. So, like you said, Miranda, is just a lot of people heard that evacuation orders were coming first from cops, other people calling them, mm -hmm. you know, not, Facebook. not from any official source. And then you get all those people that you know, don't want to evacuate and everything. So, Or they're asleep when yeah. the alerts come in. Paradise has a very high population of elderly people who, A, can't move quickly, B, don't have access to technology like cell phones and Facebook. So they've got landlines. Well, didn't a part of their phone system go down because they weren't able to reach these people on landlines? Yeah, it's the worst wildfire in California history. Most of the people that passed were found in their homes or trying to flee in their cars, or just outside seeking shelter. It is pretty crazy. And, and then the other next big step is investigators from CAL FIRE, their job is to find out how the fire started. They always start with thinking that people started the fire. Right. Whether by accident, it could be on purpose, but that's where they start, thinking that somebody did something to spark a fire, and that's where the investigation is going to go right now. They say something as tiny as a pebble can be a very important clue because they look at things like what side was it blackened on by the heat? What's the condition of the soil below where the pebble is? Are there flames that burn from left to right or right to left? They can tell all of that just by looking at a burned tree they know. And a lot of people are looking towards Pacific Gas and Electric, which is the largest utility company up there. One of the stats said that Cal Fire said... That of the 21 major fires last fall in Northern California, 17, at least 17 were caused by power lines, poles, other equipment owned by Pacific Gas and Electric. And once they figure that out, Oscar, then they can start seeking compensation for firefighting costs. And the case of the campfire is going to be astronomical, whoever foots the bill, because there's more than 5,600 firefighters still on the lines as of Wednesday with 23 helicopters and 630 engines 
out on the road. Yeah. So the news still not good up there. Uh, the fires are do seem to be getting under control, but this is the next step is surveying all the devastation, tracking down those final missing people, seeing what the final death toll will be and finding where the origin of the fire is. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. All right, that's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.